This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where I'm excited because right now, Zupan's has their a winter citrus favorite, and they're juicy, seedless, and easy to peel, very easy to peel, sumo oranges. So that's a cross between a Japanese satsuma, and I'm sure everybody's familiar with that, and a sure. California navel orange. What I love about these is just how easy they are to peel, but also just super delicious and very convenient. When you walk into your local Zupans, they are right there at the front of the store. You can't miss them. Yeah, in their beautiful produce department, which displays everything like it's they are works of art, which in fact they are. Yeah. Also take advantage of other great, uh, if you're not an orange person, maybe you're an apple person. Honeycrisp apples are on sale through the 17th of January. Uh, those are uh, grown locally. They're organic. Have you had the Honeycrisp, Chris? Uh, they feel like they're somewhat of a newer uh, kind of apple. I don't think, I don't know if they're that new, but I have had them. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't load up on apples every time I go to the store. You know, my dad used to go with the apple a day keeps the doctor away. And that worked for, what, 83 years. So, um, so, but I'm not quite there with apples, although I do enjoy them. And I know everything at Zupan's, you can, usually there's some samples there to try too. Yeah, honey crisps are great. So pick those up at your local Zupans. Or if maybe you're not an, an apple person, maybe. Uh, what, but what goes well with apples is actually cheese. Have you tried this Rogue River Blue Cheese from the Rogue Creamery? Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, and uh, you know, Zupans cheese selection is stellar. Yeah, and what's great about this cheese is that it's uh, produced seasonally and was named back in uh, 2019, 2020, the best cheese in the world at the World Cheese Awards that took place in Italy. So uh, I, I love this. And if you're not a big blue cheese fan, uh, which I wasn't for the longest while, I actually found if you put a little, uh, like a small amount of butter on the bread with the blue cheese, it kind of takes that edge off. And oh, it's good. I've so, always so good. loved a little blue cheese. melt. Yes, with a lot of butter melted on anything a baguette any any kind of bread that you enjoy is just a fantastic snack or meal very nice so pick up all of these great things at your local zupans three locations to serve you on mcadam west burnside lake oswego and we always recommend what chris people go to where very simple zupans.com All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures. I'm co-host Court Johnson on the first episode of the podcast in 2023. You got that big ding morning radio sound effect to indicate that this is will be the first of our 10th year of the podcast. We will be completing 10 years when we get to December 31st of this year. Court, I commend you for sticking with this and I commend all our listeners for sticking with us for, for this long from the days that we had to tell people what a podcast was in 2014, when we kicked this off in January of 2014, uh, to the days where everybody has a podcast and and we're happy to have listeners who still decide to listen to right at the fork 
Yeah, pretty pretty significant. I mean, I was actually just thinking uh, as you were talking, Chris, that uh, I've had jobs at different companies, and I'm we are quickly approaching uh, the area, the time where I didn't stay with. I, I think the longest I stayed with one company was like ten, maybe eleven years, and so mm-hmm. we're we're coming on my my max i might be maxed out is what i'm trying to say yeah well other than my own businesses which i've had for quite a long time but working for somebody else this isn't working for somebody else anyway 10 10 years is good and it's great work uh no this is good work all my work is good work i enjoy everything i do i enjoy my trips that we're doing that Portland Food Adventures has has evolved into. I haven't done any of the events that started me off, that got me going, that kind of got this podcast going since the pandemic. And I'm frankly having a little problem with the model that I had and and kicking those in again, Court. You know, my Portland Food Adventures dinners that started in 2010 so that's now you know that's over 12 years ago feature chefs talking about where they like to go and sending people on their way with gift cards to go to those places to eat and i'm just thinking we're not in a time where diners are going to want to go into a restaurant and slap down a couple of gift cards uh, that's not where we are. We, we need to support restaurants and um, and uh, do the best we can for them. So I just think it's kind of an uncomfortable period. A lot of those were were given to us promotionally, and I just can't see going to a lot of these restaurants and saying I need 50 gift cards for $20 now. Even though it's a great marketing idea, I just, I'm just not there. So um, anyway... So we still have our trips with Portland Food Adventures. We still have this podcast where we're talking to all the great people who make up the Portland food scene and court to start off 2023. We're starting a little series that where we get to talk to everybody who has made up the Portland food scene in the past and now have left the scene and are on to other things. That may be people who've gone on to different careers or different areas of the country or world. Um, So we're doing a little Where Are They Now? We didn't really give it a good name series that I think we'll do once a month, and we're going to kick it off with one of my favorite people who ever came on the podcast. I think a couple of times, actually, Court. I had in mind episode number five, for which would have been February of 2014, uh, where we had Sarah Hart from Alma Chocolate, one of the most interesting conversations we've had on the podcast. I've always cited it to people who've said, what should I start with or what, what, re- what episode would be interesting? For years, I would point them to Sarah Hart's first episode, and then she came back on after a trip to Japan and talked a little bit about sourcing chocolate in Japan and what she was up to a little later on. Well, now Sarah is a psychotherapist. She got out of the chocolate business. She sold Alma Chocolate, her pride and joy that she started in tribute to her grandmother, uh, to Moonstruck Chocolate a few years ago, and I believe they have now dissolved it. So um, it's not out there anymore. So if anybody has any chocolate that's still hanging around from Alma, she had some beautiful... um, 
uh, gold foiled chocolate or gold chocolate as well. Um, they have uh, they have maybe something that's uh, an icon that's worth something in the Portland field, but um, but delicious nonetheless. But Sarah is on to psychotherapy. Um, a little bit of a rocky road getting started, I believe, and making and selling the company. We'll hear from her on this episode about how that went, how she felt about it, and I had contacted her right after the sale to ask if she'd come on the podcast and share her thoughts with us at the time. And at the time, I think it was a little emotional for her. And she, she chose not to do that a couple of years ago. But I asked her again in uh, December of 2022, and she uh, was excited about the opportunity to chat and talk a little bit about past history with Alma Chocolate, how that went. But also where she is now and her growth in life. So um, I really enjoyed it. I met Sarah years ago at one of the aforementioned events um, uh, with Portland Food Adventures at Tabla. She was a suggested um, uh, vendor so that we gave gift certificates to Alma Chocolate out at the event at Tabla in the first like I think it was like the fifth event that we did back way back when. And I sat with Sarah throughout dinner and really enjoyed my time with her and got to know her. And so I'm hoping that um, another hour with her right now is uh, an enjoyable experience for everybody who is listening, liking, and subscribing to our podcast, Court. I think, it, uh, I think this is a fun direction to go it's not a complete direction but a little offshoot on our interviews to talk about those people that everyone knew well everyone knows and loved right and where they're what they're doing now what do you think court yeah i i know i think it's really interesting because uh you know um I don't think when we had this conversation with sarah back in 2014 that we would would have thought that ten years from then that she would be completely out of the chocolate business and and be a psychotherapist. Yeah, and who would have thought we would have still been doing this podcast to be and, and that doing it ten years yeah. later? So and that yeah, that too. So or it's not it's actually not ten. It's that funny thing where it's actually it's in our tenth year. yeah we're on our tenth year. It's actually nine years, but yeah. but so this yeah. podcast occurred nine years ago, and there's another one for Sarah. So if you go to our right at the fork website, there is a search bar there, and if you put in Sarah Hart, oh, I'm going to make I'm going to make it super easy for everybody because I think this is important. So yeah, so episode five is the first appearance of Sarah on the website, and then she returned in March of 2016 alongside Jesse Manis of Cacao uh, when they were uh, either going to or coming from Japan, and that's episode 74. Yes, and Cacao is no longer with us. That yeah. was a, that was a, a sad uh, closing a few years ago, too. So um, we're in a different, I think we're in a different uh, era in the Portland food world, and uh, we're just hoping to bridge the gap a little bit and remember what made us fall in love with it in the first place. And then certainly Sarah Hart, formerly of Alma Chocolate, and now on our show notes will indicate where to find her now. Um, Sarah Hart, psychotherapist. First time I've said that ever leading into one of our interviews. 
Enjoy. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years now, Ringside has been providing the best in steaks and has been the home for the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Now featuring dining in their updated dining room and al fresco in one of the nicest outdoor dining spaces in the city. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com and while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about the exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. Hi. Hey. <laughs> it's been a long time. I, had, I don't see you around anymore. Not, I mean, neither of us are really running in similar circles to where that we were used to in the past. No, it's true. Well, and with the pandemic also, I'm like, I don't run in any circles anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, well, that's, that's the case with a lot of people, but you're not running in the food world circles anymore, which is... I don't know. I thought that was very sad, but we all have life stories, and that's why we're here this morning, I guess. You were kind enough to say, yeah, I'll do that. I know when you first left Alma and started your practice, I had asked you about this, yeah. and you, you kind of wanted to save it for your own thing, but I think some time has passed. I'm guessing some time yeah. has passed and the departure from Alma is not as raw for you and you're into your new career now. So now it's not, it's, it's a little more of a story and less of a traumatic experience. Exactly. When you first reached out to me, I couldn't talk about it yet because I was still trying to integrate what happened, trying to understand what happened, you know? And uh, yeah, it would just hurt too much. So yeah, well, I feel and like I'm on the other so, side. And it won't hurt as much. It's like anything else. It's like getting over a divorce, and then you're able to have better perspective and then see what happens as a result of that, all the positive things that occur that you can't see when you're going through the shit, you know, when you're going through the shit of, of selling Alma chocolate, which was your baby. I mean, we all right. associated you with that. Yeah, it was really, I put almost 17 years into that. So it was big. It was big to transition out of that identity. But just like you said, like, um, I'm, I don't believe in silver linings. I believe in the both and of things, if that makes sense. Like, well, and this is part of what I'm doing now. I'm a therapist. So I'm <laughs> with people with mostly the difficult things that have happened to them that they're struggling with, right? And so there's this, uh, she's a pretty famous, uh, like, sex and couples therapist. Her name is Esther Perel. She's this uh, Belgian woman, and she has podcasts and stuff, but she has a book. I think in that one, she's talking about um, affairs and how they can act sometimes be good for a relationship. And so she says people will say to her, so do you recommend that we have an affair? And she's like, no, people that get uh, 
very serious illnesses talk about the meaning that it gave to your to their life. Right. But I you wouldn't, wouldn't recommend getting exactly. I wouldn't recommend getting cancer so that you get that insight. So this for me, the both and like there's so many things I learned as a result of going through what I went through. Would I have wanted to learn them that way? No, thank you. But I did, right? So it's both. Yeah, and you cannot, again, when you're in the woods, you cannot see what's on the other side. So for me, I can identify uh, two periods in my life that were altering and traumatic. and, And in fact, now that time has gone passed on both of them they were the best things that happened to me so i wish someone would have well people did tell me it'll be okay yeah but i wish i had been able to see the future and say oh you'll lots of new things will come to pass as a result of these things totally totally so you but you can't see that that's all abstract you can only when you're going through tough times kind of see the negatives right you you can identify those but yeah not, well when not, your teeth have been kicked in right you're not like oh the new ones that i'm gonna get later are gonna be so beautiful mm. <laughs> you're just like fuck i'm bleeding this hurts oh, i'm probably not supposed to swear you can no, you out. can do you can do we're not bleeping we don't bleep in this I, I'm one who doesn't believe in bleeping. I don't believe in asterisks when someone wants to say the word fuck and they put F asterisk asterisk K. I think that I think that dra- draws even more attention to that word if you're trying to avoid it. Totally. So I just don't. I, I don't get it. It just doesn't. Say, but anyway, you can say what you want. Um, so let's talk a little bit about... Um, you know, without going into in detail as much as you'd like. I would like to, we never really got to talk about the end of Alma Chocolate and how that came about and the hard decisions you must have had to have made, right? They're not easy. It's not like you planned a, how many years did you say you'd been doing it? 17, 17 yeah. 17? Almost by the end, yeah. It's not like you planned a 17-year run and then, okay, at that point, I'm going to go somewhere else. The 17 years comes about, circumstances happen, and you have to make decisions. Right, right. Yeah, well, I feel like, as in many things, the beginning of the end happened way before the end, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, there was a transition point when Alma was just a little storefront and it was just me and a couple people, right? And um, that intersected with a kind of a place in my life where, like, to do that, Alma was profitable, but it was only profitable if I, I only made, like, $30,000 a year, right, for myself. <laughs> and that wasn't sustainable in the long run. And I'd set out, I'd done what I'd set out to do kind of creatively, if that makes sense. I'd realized the vision so then the next step was to be like how can I grow this thing so um and that intersected with the time when Portland was like the darling of the world food scene or the national food scene right like everybody was talking about Portland right so um there was a lot of um encouragement to grow the business and um and uh the advice from many people was like, get out over your skis, which now I'm like, 
oh, if anybody tells you that, <laughs> tell them, oh, no, no, no. But I got out over my skis, you know, and mm-hmm. um, had tried to fund it through, like, uh, you know, equity line of credit on my house and stuff and quickly was burning through that because it was like we had a business plan, but it wasn't working like the the cash burn was too fast. So I was at one of those inflection points. I brought in investors and um, yeah, that just was never a very good relationship is the short story of it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, Alma grew in revenue uh, kept growing. We did a lot of really, I mean, I'm very proud of what we as a team accomplished, but the revenue margins were never right. Like we could never get the formula quite to work. Right. And so by the end, the investors owned most of the company and we came to a place where it was just like, this isn't sustainable. So that was the place you you got to make different numbers when you have investors. So you started out where all you had to do was cover your very modest living, which was too modest, but at least it, you were doing something you loved. Right. And you could see, okay, if I can take it from 30,000 to 50 or 60,000, I'm going to love it even more. And then in order to do that, you need some cash to grow it. This is what I see on, I reference on this podcast a lot, Shark Tank. And yeah. I see it all the time. It's like the sharks, it's a great little business for you. But once you get us involved, it changes the game entirely. Completely. Completely. Yeah. Yes. So, well, I would imagine, and was it... Um, that made it tougher that you had other people involved financially that you had to come to them and say, I don't think this is going to work, right? At some point, you're just telling them you've... Yeah, I mean, investment- that, we'd kept trying for years. I think we they it wasn't working, you know, and we kept trying to rejigger it and rejigger it, you know. It kind of got to the point where it was like, we can't put any more cash into this. It's stupid. And were you... At that point, had you lost the um, innocent enjoyment of your oh, labors? Yeah. I, you know, I would imagine in the beginning you're making this delicious chocolate. You're getting all these accolades for the special things that you're doing and you what you did embodied Portland, right? I mean, you were right there in the heart of the artisan Portland food movement. And then I would imagine after a while, it's like, I don't even want to see my kid anymore go out get out of here go right yeah that's that kind of um creativity maybe isn't sustainable i don't know i really don't know i've thought a lot you know i love that movie um that old movie stanley tucci the big night you know which Mm -hmm. is really all about this dilemma like art and commerce, how do they go together? I had hoped, you know, and this is maybe the arrogance of my move to grow the business, like, or maybe it was naivete, like part of what was interesting to me about growing it was like, can you grow it in a way that's like, keeps the product quality good? Can you grow it in a way that is like, provides good livings for the people that work for you? It turns out in capitalist America, Probably not. 
like what's asked, what you're doing is competing with people that are, have things automized or is that a word? You know what I Autom- mean? Like, automated, automated. Automated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that's a whole thing I could, and, go but their and their quality, I guess could be good, but it's not the same as someone who's lovingly dealing with every piece by hand pretty much. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that uh, I can't imagine how sad that was for you to eventually wake up and realize that I not only won't this sustain itself, but I don't. Ju- I'm not in love with it anymore. Yeah. So, um, so at what stage did you? How long had, in your life had you been thinking about the career you have now? As a what is the official term? So I don't I'm get a it wrong. Psychotherapist, but I yeah, a psychotherapist. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know there, if there was like CS, you know. Oh, I'm an LPC, or, but no. LPC, what that okay. Means. That's uh-huh. what I was Okay. So psychotherapist, at what point were you thinking, well, this that's something that I may want to um, pursue. Is that goes way back and you just put it on the sidelines for Alma? Where, yeah. Where, where did that come in? It does go way back. So um, my first, like, I taught college writing like in my mid twenties. And, um, then I had my second child and, uh, we, for complicated reasons before that we had moved to Portland, um, without jobs. And, uh, so I ended up getting a restaurant job, uh, to, you know, figure it out until we could get other career stuff going. And then I had my second child and then, um, I ended up working in restaurants so that I could mostly be home with him during the day and then work at night, uh, just worked out for what our family needed, you know, but, um, I guess when they were about three, I was like, suddenly like, shit, I've got my PhD in waiting tables and I didn't intend to do that. Like, I want to think about what I really want to do. And um, I didn't think I wanted to teach at that point. So I was going to go back to school to get a master's degree in counseling. And then the idea for Alma came on. And, and how came. did that come on, by the way? Yeah. We, pro- t- we probably covered it in the last one, but I mean, that was what, nine years ago now when we first know, sp- right? sat down to speak. So it came on because I was, well, I love, really love chocolate, um, but I was we're filling my son's Easter basket and uh, just got really pissed off at what was available. You know, I was just like, this is terrible. Waxy bunnies with like, they didn't, nobody even put their eyes on right. You know, they're like looking both directions. And um, chocolate, like people live and die over cacao. Historically and present day, I was like, things that made out of chocolate should be amazing they should honor what goes into growing it, you know, and, and then I got obsessed and that's where things started. But, you know, I originally wrote the whole idea down and put it in a drawer and was like, ah, you can't do that. That's stupid. And then one, it just kept bugging me. And one day I pulled it out and in a whisper read it to my then husband, cause I couldn't even say it out loud. And he was like, I think it's a great idea. And then I was like, told my mom about it. And she was like, 
I think it's a great idea. Do you need money? So she loaned me like $5,000, which was what started Alma in my basement. And the rest is. And less investment, right? To go to school, to get a degree in psychotherapy or whatever, whichever direction it would go. Uh, It's kind of a more instant gratification path. Yeah. Doesn't take as long. And you get to work with a beautiful product. And let's face it, then you were in the throes of this movement in Portland that was beautiful about, you know, making the best of the local ingredients that we have here. And, yeah. and, your, and your industry brothers and sisters were all doing beautiful things, too. And you could be part of that. a sweet time. Right. Yeah, yeah was, so, that was a blast. I, I think if you had been doing it in a vacuum... And it wasn't part of that community. I, I'm going to guess you may not. You may have reached in the other drawer and pulled out the application for school. Totally, so. <laughs> totally. There was. I did actually apply to school, but then, um, but the right that was such a sweet point in Portland's history too, right? Because rent was still inexpensive. Like people supported things like the farmer's market had for, you know, like I moved to Eugene in 1985 and the sort of support for artisan handmade local was just part of the culture there and of Portland's culture too. So I think there was a lot of things that supported it. I couldn't, I don't think you could do what I did now in Portland Bootstrap. I hate that phrase bootstrap because I don't think anybody really bootstraps, but I think to afford, to do it so cheaply and all of that to, I don't know that you can do it. I think the game has changed. And then on top of it, <laughs> well, I was going to address it a little later, but on top of it right now, you have you have your nice little shop that doesn't cost you much. And in today's world, you'd show up and half the days your windows would be broken. And you, yeah. that's not something that someone who's bootstrapping a business can really take care of <laughs> on a daily no. basis. No, so we had things like that happen a few times, but not at the level they're happening now. And just to like replace a door suddenly you're like oh <laughs> like there goes the tiny bit of profit we had this month right on that stuff yeah it keeps happening so um were you was there an overlap when you had decided you were gonna close well sell oh that's a question so you sold to moonstruck right yeah and did you realize anything coming out of it, or did that just get you out of it? It just got me out of it. Yeah. I didn't get it. Well, that's, not, that's not the dream, right? The dream no. is at least to sell it and then, you know, be able to take a couple of years to go to Switzerland and try chocolate. Right, right, right. No, in fact, I had to go through bankruptcy. Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, so. Even with selling it, that's crazy. And, yeah. um I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't they just shut down? Is is there still an Alma or did they just fold it into what they're doing? So they were, the plan for Moonstruck was to keep Alma as a separate identity. <clears throat> they had hoped to um, 
grow it as sort of the organic, uh, sustainable arm of what they were doing, but keep the Alma name and, um, you know, launch it in that way. Um, and I think in the first year of the pandemic and with their own, I mean, Moonstruck has since sold two, you know, they don't, it's owned by somebody else now. Um, I think they realized they had to focus on keeping their own original brand alive and they just didn't have the bandwidth to do with Alma what they had originally thought they would do. So I think it was in the first year. It's such a blur now, isn't it? All was that 2020, the summer of 2020, I think they closed Alma up. Hmm. That's sad. Um, so how far in advance did you decide, all right, I'm going to go to school and this is going to be the new path. Did you have, was, was that happening as you transitioned out of Alma or did you have a little it bit of time? It was, um, a couple of years before actually, cause it was clear, like when I no longer had, um, financial control of the company, I was looking to figure out what I was going to do next because it was not fun for me to not have the control over the vision. Like I hated it. Um, and I know myself enough to know I'm a terrible employee, which is probably why I also didn't like having to answer to investors. So I was like, whatever job I have to do, I'm going to have to be working for myself. So that's the long winded answer to your question. Yeah, no. So, um, and how long did it take to for you to start a practice and, and get it rolling? So I think that I'm five years into the whole process. It was a, my school was two year program and then um, an internship. And then, you know, I took two and a half years to get my full license. So I worked part-time in private practice right out of the gate, but also I worked part-time for the city for adult protective services um, just to have, A, some regular income, and B, to, like, there's a lot of the systemic stuff that I wanted to learn about, about how the, how mental health is or is not supported, and um, and also there's, yeah, I I look, I looked at it as an sort of essentially a paid internship, like a chance to learn how to, it's a language you have to learn, not the language of when you're doing therapy, but the language of how do you write up the notes and how do you interact with, um, uh, medical systems and stuff. That is a lot to learn. I would imagine. And it's not what you years back when you thought I wanted to do this. It's not what you had envisioned as part of the, no profession and yeah. i think it's same same thing with anybody in a in the food business you know you start out working with food and farmers and doing all the romantic things and then the next thing you know you're sitting at a computer working with spreadsheets and right trying to make that work right so um so did you uh personal question and of course there are laws about ask asking and answering these questions but had you experienced um psychotherapy from the other side of the sofa in your life so oh, you yes, kind of yes, yes. had something going in oh for sure years okay and, 
<laughs> I'm still and, in therapy. I probably will be for the rest of my life. Uh, I think this is my opinion about if you're a therapist, I think it is not mandated that you be in therapy, but I think it's a should be mandated that you be in therapy because you've got to be on your stuff. You don't want to be projecting that onto clients. You don't want to be, you've got to know yourself really well, I think, to be ethically doing that work. Right. Well, also, I would imagine you pick up some things that uh, that you like and don't like as to how your therapy is going and what works for you. I've been to a number of therapists, and I I can't tell you what the magic wand is when I feel like one of them is doing a great job, right? There's no, this is their method. It's not like, you know, this is what they do to the car and it runs like a top. Right. It's just kind of like a vibe and, um, it's so relational. Right. I don't do lessons very well, you know, come back Tuesday and fill out these seven things. So um, I never give homework to clients. Sometimes I'll suggest like, go read this, but like, People aren't going to do that unless they want to, right? Just as if, like, sometimes people will be like, tell me what to do. Therapy is not about telling people what to do. It's about helping people find out what they want and need and what's in the way of that. And even if you, like, knew exactly what they should do and you told them, nobody's going to do it unless they want to, you know? I would find it very hard if you think you know the answer, like just, you know, maybe the answer is just shut the fuck up. So like, listen better. So, and, and you know, that might be something that you want to tell someone. You Do you have to nuance that and get them around where they learn it, they figure it out themselves? That's such a good question. It depends. You know what I mean? And this is where I think therapy, like anything, is an art, like, of like how you're reading what's happening, whether or not you confront somebody with that. But it is a good segue back to (laughs) Alma because people are like, how did you get from chocolate to being a therapist? And I always am like, oh, the great, the thing that I actually love about being a therapist is that a lot of the same skills of like when you're in service in, you know, the service industry, you've got to read what somebody wants. You've got to like pick up the nuances. You've got to like judge that or whatever. Like, and that's one of the things when I was waiting tables that I loved about waiting tables was that like, I was really good at picking up the vibe really quickly, you know, so that this person wants, this guy wants to show off how much he knows. So I'm going to back off and like, let him show off or this person really wants to be like educated about the menu. So I'm going to be much more hands-on, you know, like doing that kind of reading of the situation. But there's also a lot of like not saying what you really see. Right. And now I get to see what I see and say it, you know, like, because like you said, you don't know what that magic wand is, but um, what, generally people need to work up work on shows up in your therapeutic relationship maybe not right away but like the things they notice the things they avoid the are they chronically late are they you know all of that kind of stuff that's part of the therapy and of course you point that out 
Hmm. Well, I I have so many questions about that <laughs> because, you know, I always wonder. <laughs> I, I've never interviewed someone in your position before, so. Uh, but although I have asked my therapist these questions, and we it's it's entertaining. Yeah. When we turn it around, and I'm asking the questions, but so have you? <laughs> do you have patients? Where you're sitting there and just retching and thinking, I can't wait for this hour to be over. This is the most boring. This person, you just want to scream out to them, your life is insanely boring and it's never going to change. So I don't know if I can help you. Hmm. I have been bored before. I'll be honest, but I have the philosophy that that's on me if I'm bored, like that's maybe even part of what's at issue for that person, right? Like there's something about their affect that's super flat or something about yeah, that's like... that's what I mean. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but I think it's such a unique relationship and this is going to sound... Well, I don't care how it sounds. I think because you only see somebody for an hour a week... And it's under really particular circumstances with really clear boundaries. You're not going to be friends with them. You can't be friends with them in, in real life. Um, I really love them. You know, there's like this possibility of really coming to understand someone and care about their well-being that like maybe if I met that person, I would really find them irritating or something like that but because you're like sitting with them in a different way and it's i don't know so i think that helps a ton well i think you know there's you know you said you can't be friends and of course you can't fraternize outside of the office but i like to feel like you know this is someone you're being very intimate with right and so you want you kind of consider they kind of better be a friend because if they're you know, if if they're trying to help, that's something that friends do. Yeah. So, you know, I always feel like I probably feel more than I should in terms of my relationship with my therapist. Like, oh, she really likes me. She's looking forward to this this hour, and yeah. I'm probably way off on that. But, um, you know, I, I try to make it entertaining myself. So I'm entertained, right? You're talking yeah. about yourself a lot. Yeah, you have to. You are. And if you have any um, uh, self-awareness and humility, there, there should be laughs involved when right. you're talking about your bullshit. So right. anyway. All right, Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Right. For over, it says on their website, over 78 years, I'm thinking... We're getting close to 80. It might be over 79 years for Ringside Steakhouse. There are very few restaurants. I can only think of a couple in Portland that can claim that banner, having been here through thick and thin for many years. Ringside is, of course, a, um, a hallmark when it comes for occasions, business meetings, or even uh, if you're just looking for great service and a great night out. It's ringside. And of course, you can't go wrong on Monday nights with their three-course prime rib dinner. Um, that includes, obviously, uh, the best prime rib in town. And also, of course, you get uh, you know other things that go along with it, which includes that creme brulee for dessert. 
Right, and I think they're Yorkshire pudding, which is fantastic as well. Oh, yeah. I'm going to suggest that if anybody hasn't had enjoyed Wagyu steak, they check out Ringside and look at their offerings there. Um, yes, it's a premium experience, but it's well worth it if you're a steak lover and want to try something out of the ordinary. Ringside does uh, a fantastic job sourcing their Wagyu beef from Japan. And speaking of out, Chris, we should point out that uh, may- maybe one of the great things that might have come from the pandemic is that takeout is still available at Ringside Steakhouse, something that wasn't available before the pandemic. Right. You can order it up to an hour ahead of time, up until 9 p.m. You just uh, go to the Ringside's website, order a fantastic meal to enjoy at home. It'll be better than whatever you have planned and pick it up an hour later. And on the website, Chris, we should also point out that's where you can make reservations or make those reservations through the Open Table app. So, do you love what you do now? Do you have? Do are you wake up every day and think, "I'm so glad I did this"? And you know, you're. I don't. We won't talk about your age, but at some point, it we can may talk be about something my age. I'm going to be wonder- sixty next All year. All right. Yeah. 60. Can you want me to give you my therapy on 60? Tell me. My ther- my advice. So when I was coming upon 50 was like 08 and 09 when the financial shit hit the fan and yeah. it really hit it hard for me. And so, uh, you know, 50 is like a number that people fear. My mother instilled in me a fear of aging. I mm. mean, that was her whole thing, avoiding aging with looks and lying on her driver's license for her entire life well, yeah. by a year because she wanted to be younger than my father. Um, <laughs> so anyway, long story short, 50 was for me not my favorite time in life. So as I approached 60, the mathematical logic would stand that if 50 was terrible, well, 60 is going to be that much worse, right? It's 10 years later. Well, it wasn't until the day before my 60th birthday that I had this epiphany. I remember I was driving on 26 and I thought, well, let's take stock of what 60 is going to look like. Well, all the things that were difficult in my life at 50 were not there. Right. I it wasn't going through losing my house. I wasn't going through huge financial challenges with losing income when the economy changed and my advertising business went from analog to digital and I couldn't necessarily I didn't want to play that game with a bunch of 20-year-old hotshots right. who could run circles around me. Uh, There was that. My kids were no longer teenagers and they were self-sustaining and had done well. So when I was 50, I was in the, you know this, I guess, I can't presume, but I was in the middle of the grunty teenage shit years. And uh, not that I was ever like that. (laughs) Um, And then my parents were very difficult and they passed before I was 60. Mm. My brother was extremely challenging at that time, and mm. now we're estranged, so we don't talk. Yeah. So I, have, I don't have that stress. So literally, I don't remember, 12 hours before I hit 60, I thought, this is going to be great. 
And I have to get rid of this thing that my mom instilled in me that aging is necessarily negative. I have wisdom that I didn't have 10 years ago. And I have wisdom that I didn't have 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, my looks, whatever. I've been dealing with those issues my whole life. Um, I feel, and actually I felt better about my looks at 60 than I probably had on any other time in my life. I relaxed on myself. I love that. So, you know, there was a, that's my 60s thing, and I literally thought it was going to be hell, and it's been great. I really love it. L- fewer responsibilities, trying to, you know, lighten up a little bit on the work side. All right, I told you I was going to get some free therapy here. I'm just throwing <laughs> this out. I love it. Yeah, and I'm so glad, like, that you brought that up, the aging, and um, I mean, I think about it a lot. <clears throat> I... um you know, I mean, the conversations that we have always had, I've always been very philosophical, even when I wasn't trained to think about things in a certain way. But um, where was I going with that? Oh, what I was going to say is that uh, <laughs> last night when um, we were going to sleep, my partner said to me, sleep well. What did he say? It's such a funny thing to say. He's a therapist, too. He said something, I hope you sleep well, and I hope that when you die, you have a peaceful death. And I started to started to fall asleep, and then I, like, popped open, and I was like, Daniel, I'm really scared about dying, <laughs> and I feel ashamed about that. I feel like I should be, like, okay with it. And then this connects very much with what you said about turning 60, is that, like, I am scared to die because I don't know what that's going to be like, like the actual process. Mm -hmm. But it was so liberating when I said it out loud because I was like, oh, you know what that means? I really like being alive. I really want to live. So there's something about realizing that it's not forever. And my mom died at the beginning of the pandemic, too. And I was with her when Mm. she died. And so there's something about that, too, that like. There's the liberation of knowing that it doesn't go on forever and that we don't have a lot of time to waste. Like, I don't, I get caught up about how I look and about how, like, you know, the things that happen to your body as you get older and all of that. Like, I'm not immune to that, but less and less. And, like, people talk a lot about getting invisible and how much they hate that. And I'm like, I kind of fucking love it. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't. That's the part, like, Alma was so fun, and I got to do so many fun things. I got to go so many places, and I got to, like, and I had a blast doing that. But that was not sustainable, that sort of public persona. I like, like, nobody really noticing me or caring what I do, except for the people that I really want to care about me. I remember you telling me that in the midst of being at Alma, that you just would prefer to go in and just not have to talk to a lot of people. And here you have a, your profession now is talking. Yeah, that's and true. listening. That's so true. It's, but it's it isn't a dilemma. performance in any way. And I feel like there was some aspect of Alma that was an authentic self, but a performative self in some ways, a public 
self. Yeah, but when you walk in that room every day now, you're, it's it's a kind of a performance, right? It's a you, role. Ha- you're, you have to be on and you have to do the best you can for someone who's relying on you. So you have to, uh, you don't, you're not singing and dancing. Right. But you have to, you know, get out, you have to get out of the person that you just were while you're eating a sandwich at lunch and walk in and this is my thing now. So, right. Um, yeah, that's, it's interesting. Do you, so do you miss anything about the chocolate business at all? Do you, I, I assume I you miss the, the things from the early days and not the way it was at the end. For sure. Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, you reached out to me recently to see if I would do this. And, um, I said, yes. And, just prior to that, maybe maybe a week ago or something, I had put something out on a chocolate forum just saying like, hey, does anybody have a line on a like a small tempering machine? Because I'm finally ready to start like playing around again just for my own pleasure. And that's what I miss. I miss there was nothing like being in that creative zone when I was coming up with something like where I had an idea of something I wanted to make. And I was like, playing around with all the different things to make it happen. Uh, I love that. And I miss that a lot. And I, you can do that playing around on your own and even better. I don't know where to bring your daughter into this hand. You brought her into Alma. Yeah. And that was how to be gratifying for you to have your daughter be the, you know, the very important part of what you were doing there. And now if you're playing around yourself, you could do that together and, totally. and have it be all about fun and not problems. Right. Exactly. Well, and she's amazing. Um, do you remember on a different podcast that we did, I was banned from saying amazing. Uh, oh, we kind of, we, we kind of relaxed on that, but yeah, well, she is a really good baker. Like she is, so she's got, and I got that from my mom too. My mom was a really just naturally great cook and really interested in food. So a lot of that, yeah, Hannah's that way now. And so playing around like that, of course, now she's got a, um, a six year old. And so, um, her time is, uh, not so widely available to just playing around. Time flies, yeah. and six is uh, six demands a little attention, especially nowadays. Oh my God! Yeah, just watching the how much parents have to put into kids at this age that are parents. I don't know about yours, but my parents, we just set us out to play. No homework help. No, no, no developing uh, a full curriculum of activities to be driven to. Right. And, uh, oh, my God, the uh, it was so easy. And I was frustrated because when I had kids, it was just on the line where the, you had to start being super involved in their lives. And I just rejected it. I thought, I've already gone to school. Right. You need, this, the whole, this whole exercise really is to teach you to be independent. Is it any wonder that our society is the way it is now? Because kids can't do anything, couldn't. I, I, I'm generalizing. I know there are some, but generally speaking, they got help. And, and right. if the minute they can't do anything, the, someone comes to help and do it for them. Right. 
Which is terrible, right? It's terrible for someone's self-esteem, too. Like, that really gives somebody the message that, like, you can't do it. And you get no tolerance for struggling. Well, you don't even get the opportunity now to say, what can you do on your own? Yeah. It's automatically done. So Yeah. I think uh, maybe in my generation was a, maybe a little bit like, maybe it could have used a little more guidance. And, well, <laughs> like I have I mean, some s- intense learning disabilities that never were addressed. Like, right? I didn't, well, yeah, but they, did, they didn't have the systems in place yeah, then. Yeah. So my oldest son has Asperger's syndrome. He was born in 1989. Mm. And they had nothing, nothing in place when he was diagnosed. The only thing I was given was a book by Hans Asperger. And that was written in 1938. And it, you know, Germany, and it had nothing to do with my son. It was like, it was very frustrating. But now you go to, well, if a bookstore existed, um, no, you go to a bookstore and there's a whole section on all of that and support systems for it. Why did I bring that up? I'd, oh, so... Um, Learning yeah, disabilities and, and, in school. Right, and yeah. think, about, think about the kids that were a little off in school. Yeah, I think about They had nothing for them. They'd stick them all in the same program and put them in a classroom together. And um, they, weren't, they were not interspersed, you know, to figure out how to deal with the real world. Yeah. So... I don't know. I have, I'm just proud my son has made it. He had some support systems, but I tried to instill in him the best thing you can do is need as little as few of them as possible. So he took advantage of some of that stuff in high school. When he got to college, I set up extended time and tests. and He used none of it. Wow. And it, I, yeah. when I found out at the end that he didn't go do any of the tutoring and anything and just kept complaining to me how hard college was, <laughs> but just struggled through oh, getting, getting a, a bachelor of science and uh, computer science. That's not easy stuff at PSU. No. And he, he did it all trying to figure out himself. But at any rate, that's neither here nor there. I mean, we were, I didn't even do homework in school. I was really good at the smoking area and and finding out where to get the best pot. And I was a good resource. I wasn't a dealer, but I was I was a resource for anybody who needed to find out where to get what. And uh, I was pretty good at that. And You're I prided still myself super on that. social and fun in that way. That, right? I, that's right. I had you know this year I had. I just put together a little retrospective video in 2022 and I had in January, I had classmates from around the country come visit because I I figured, I thought this reunion in Connecticut isn't something I really want to go to. I bet you there's some West Coast people who would like to get together, not in our hometown with those people. Right. So, and I had people come out. Yeah. So I'm still... Still there. I'm going to meet one of my best friends from first grade in five days in in, uh, Victoria. So, yes, I still have friends. We're not talking about me, but we are. Yeah. So, (laughs) but you you had a, you know, I think from what I recall on our first interview, which is back in 2014, you were like number five, I think. Wow. You were the fifth one. We're up to 330 something now. Um, but I recall you had a pretty independent childhood. I did. I did. Well, weird, like both, you know, like, um, because I was a minister's daughter. So there was like a lot of expectations 
on the one hand. And then on the other hand, like not like I was total tomboy was really allowed a lot of rain in that way until I became a young woman. And then like the shock of like the freedom really changed, which sucked. Um, but, uh, we also had a, I, so I grew up in Missouri for the most part. Um, and we had a cabin on 40 acres, uh, with a river and streams and stuff. And so I spent like almost every weekend, except for we came back on Sunday morning for church. Um, just roaming around. Do you still around. go to church? Huh? Do you still go to church? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you answered that question. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I do not. Okay. Um, yeah, well, and the uh, property with 40 acres uh, uh, in Missouri is quite a bit different than downtown portland right now let's talk a little bit about that yeah you know i um how do you feel about the city post pandemic or post george floyd i think that might have had the most impact on what's going on well first i want to situate myself because i live at um southeast sixth and division and um so i live in the southeast industrial area do we really want to say that, or is that too specific, or not? You specific couldn't. Enough? There's a lot of houses there. You'd have to like. Uh, you could. Okay, we'd fine. have to stand outside looking for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> if somebody's that interested, yikes! But um, yeah, well, you know, you never know. <laughs> but since we only have six listeners, I think we're safe. <laughs> so we're right in the heart of it, and like I said, I also, I worked for Adult Protective Services, so I was like a lot of my clients were folks who were really um, really marginalized because of finances, all of that, like really living on the edge. So I have this real struggle in me because um, I'm confronted, like for nine months, they just was moved. There was a pretty much a trailer encampment literally like across the street and um and two people died with in a camp right across the street within the course of the past three years like we've been walking home and like there's somebody passed out on the corner and like we try to wake them up and call 911 and like things like that. Our regular house has been broken into. The police have been at our door maybe eight times in the past couple of years. Like it's intense. And I don't know what the answers are, right? Like I want to be compassionate and it's hard to have like that going on right outside my door, the impacts, the I don't want to go into the details of some of the impacts, but there's some pretty horrible ones. Mm. Makes you grateful that you're housed and, you know, have all your needs met. And it's hard when you have to clean up things that you wish you didn't have to clean up. Do you find yourself uh, perhaps with slightly less liberal type thoughts than you had in the past are you do you see a little bit of the where maybe um a little 
harder line or harder approach might help. I so I don't know what to yeah. think. You know, you don't want to. And we're in this period where you think I I can't think something that would be blasphemous, and other people would think I'm a terrible person. But you know, I don't know. I found myself thinking, hey, that just needs to be cleaned up. There has to be a little less, um, a little. Less, there has to be compassion, but. There has to be a balance between compassion and actual action. Yeah. I guess I don't even know how to answer that question because um, kind of like in a microcosm, the problems with Alma started way before the manifestation of the problems with Alma. I remember you getting broken into and feeling terrible for you. Yeah. But, I mean, on a systemic level, what we're looking at in our city, those problems, the seeds of those problems started way long ago. And so there's systemic things that need changing. There's like, I don't think the solution is to crack down and put everyone in camps, you know. And what what is happening now is n- not safe or okay either, you know. I don't pretend to have the answers. I wish I did, you know. If I did, I'd certainly yeah. be advocating for them i don't know uh, that's the frustrating thing you want to have answers and you you go here and you think well you can't do that because of this and then oh this won't work we don't have funding uh you know you're not going to get backing so i don't know what to think i'm not there uh on a daily basis i i in and out of portland but i don't live there and deal with it yeah and i you know you just dealt with um i think what even prompted this conversation is you just dealt with a catalytic converter attempt oh right yeah 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 when we both were honda element you don't have one anymore right yeah but i got a car that they also want it too but i you know it got to the point i never thought about it at all I had Honda Elements for years, and I would park everywhere and never think twice about it. It got to the point where I was very concerned that I was going to come out and have that problem. And even beyond that, I used to park when I had stuff to do in Portland, go eat, business things, with my dogs in the car without even thinking twice about it. I will not do that anymore yeah, because I'm wow. just, I love them too much, and I'm just, I don't trust the city enough. Yeah. To think that someone wouldn't want to sell my dog, yeah. um, and that would be the most painful thing ever. You could, I guess, steal my car, right? But not my dog. So I don't do that anymore. So I have to make certain accommodations for that. Whereas it used to be not even a thought to go park, <laughs> leave the dog in the car, go get lunch, and come back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, big sigh. I yeah. Portland is rough in that way and rough in the way in which like that alongside how expensive it's become to live here. Like, uh, I, you know, like I, I said, I have a grandson here. Well, I don't think I said he was here, but Hannah, my daughter has a son who's six. And I think if they weren't here, I wouldn't be here either. Hmm. Where would you go? That's a really good question. I love New Mexico. That's funny. That's always where I thought I would go if this became where I couldn't live. Yeah. Santa Fe. Although that's not inexpensive either. No, but, you know, I always have all these 
simult- I have several cities that I have real estate searches going in just because I'm curious about them. And there's some stuff kind of uh, about 45 minutes out from Santa Fe that's still pretty affordable. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's in my fantasy. I always thought, you know, I keep saying, you know, um, you don't know. That's what I'm telling you. When I had my daughter very, when I was young, I was 21. Um, I thought that when my kids were grown and launched that I would go live in another country somewhere and just really immerse myself. And then, um, then I had a grandson and I don't want to be gone that long now. So, Mm -hmm. but that's in there too. Like I would love to just live in Mexico for a year and really get to know what it was like to be there. I don't know. I don't think it's happening. Yeah, Le- Le- Leaf's doing it from Flying Fish. Oh, yeah? Moved down to Mexico. Yeah. So they're down there. They've developed a school for their kids. They're inviting other families down. And I don't know if they're going to be there permanently, but he sure likes it. And, you know, he does a visit back to his restaurant for a couple of weeks every once in a while just to make sure. But he's got it dialed in. So you know what's interesting? It makes me think. I remember when I first started getting to know you and doing things in the food world and thinking how great Portland was. I could, there was a time where I could not imagine anybody ever leaving Portland. Why would anybody leave? Right. This is so great. Right. And now I, I could not, I had to get used to hearing a few people leaving. Yeah. And now I not only, you have to sit down and rationalize that. I understand it completely, and I think they're. I don't. I no longer feel like they're gonna. They maybe they're not missing out on. They're not going to be missing out on much. Here's what I, my personal feeling is, and I guess I haven't outed myself on this, but you know, I started getting to know the Portland food world in 2008, and it's now 2023. Coming up, that's 15 years. Yeah. Uh, I'm no longer as wowed by anything as I used to be, you know, and I don't need to eat as much as I used to be. And I travel internationally. So I have that, you know, Portland's still got great food, but I only, I have limited income and I'm saving it for certain things, Mm -hmm. you know, and it isn't out here in Manzanita either. I should be supporting my local community, but I'm not spending my disposable dining dollars consistently out here I, i'd go out a little bit yeah but at any rate so i can now see why people would leave portland um you know one of the guys i'm sure you know i have to do this because you get in your 60s and you start to um you know doubt who you remember eric finley yeah. of chop yeah right he moved out to arkansas right, right? to arkansas and he was a cook for walmart of all things for the guy who's doing the farmer's market all the time in portland with his charcuterie he's he's doing events for walmart but now he's got his own cart and i just wrote him yesterday and said hey i'm doing the series that i'm doing with you i'd love to chat with you at some time at some point but he had no qualms about leaving portland when he did his i remember him writing you know i don't want my daughter playing amongst needles that's what that's what we're looking at here and so he left and you can't feel i no longer feel that someone's making a bad move leaving the city that's a shame because i'm a big believer always been a big believer in portland i've I've always felt myself 
in any way I can be an ambassador to this for the city. I, yeah. you know, celebrated. I got a business called Portland Food Adventures. Right, right. But I, I, I feel similarly like I, like I feel like at one point I was like the poster child for Portland, you were, you know, um, yeah, and and you wore it well. Thank you. This is one of the things. This is one of my critiques of capitalism, or at least consumer capitalism, is that. There's something creative, inventive, and it just gets eaten up and consumed by the system and loses. It eats up the very thing that made it what it was, right? I think that happened to Portland. That, you know, that then the intersection of the pandemic and all kinds of things, you know. I think that the Portland food scene would have really morphed and crashed even without the pandemic because... It's not a big enough city to sustain the level of restaurants there are, right? Like people, there just isn't enough people to support that level of dining. It never was. Yeah. I, I remember, I'll go back to a lunch I had at Metrovino mm. with Greg and Gabby Denton yeah. and Tony Cafiero, right? Yeah. And Tony was yeah. at, uh, what was the, where we met, Tony was... Tabla at the time, and he just this. So that had to be 2011, right? Yeah. Eleven years ago, the conversation was this: this city will never sustain the amount of restaurants that we have. It just can't. It there can't. aren't. There's not enough population. And that and was happening. Of, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. Like already, like no. a new place would be open and it'd be the hot place. But then it was like, what next? 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 You know? Oh, it never stopped. We don't have as much of that going on, but there's a little more next, next, next. But um, it's, you know, everybody's looking for the shiny new thing. And I believe that, especially through the pandemic, the places like Higgins and the places that have really sustained all these years need to be considered by people. Agreed. Before the next new thing, or, or at least as equal. Yeah. Op- an opportunity to the next new thing. Those places need to stay open. I'm so, cause they represent so much. Um, do you have some favorites that you, do you get out? I mean, Oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to marry two questions together. Sure. Uh, as a business is psychotherapy working for you? Or are you a little more on sure footing than you were with Alma? And if the, if so, do you get to go out and enjoy the food scene and see some of your old, you know, the industry folks that you know and love. Well, yes, it is working out. It's a much more stable financially. So that's great. And I'm probably gonna have to work until I'm 80. So that's good. Um, and uh, the I don't get out much. I think a combination of the pandemic, my mom dying, you know, I really, really went in at the end of Alma, so many things. Like, I feel like I'm just emerging after a quite a long time of really being in, having no interest in being out. So I don't have a great answer to that question. You know, I love some places. I like, I love J&M Cafe. I have to say I eat there probably more than anywhere, eating out for breakfast. They're just solid, like, they're the first restaurant I ever went to in Portland, I think. And, you know, I go there. Uh, pretty simple. Like, 
I've never found like a bar that was my bar since uh, Kier closed. Do you remember Kier? Oh yeah, that was I've got that was a sweet spot in Portland, and I've never found a place that quite. I like Pacific Standard. I've enjoyed going there. You know, um, of the new kind of bright spots on the scene. That's been mentioned quite a few times in the last month on the podcast, so that's good for them. Yeah, that it's just it's just mentioned matter of factly. It is. So yeah, good. I'm glad. Yeah, no, I I will really like. Jeffrey and Banjo uh, a lot as humans and so I'm glad that it's working for them and yeah and I just like it it's um, it just doesn't feel like a scene but it's excellent and yeah I was really sort of bummed about the ice storm today because I'm finally feeling better post-COVID and I was going to go out there to Pacific Standard tonight and have finally tried Jeffrey's Morgenthaler's eggnog, which I've never tried, and it's supposed to be legendary, but... um, Oh, well, maybe you can get out by tonight, but he probably won't be open. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I still like Navarre, like places if I'm going to go out, out, Navarre. Uh, You know... I'm guilty of not thinking of that. That was my go first go-to in Portland was Navarre. And, um, yeah, uh, that was before I even discovered there was a real food scene. I used to read Food Dude's columns, yeah. and he talked about Navarre, and so I went. And for a long time, I would just buzz up from Lake Oswego and have a good time. I'm trying to think, Pam was from Connecticut, the server there, and we got along really well, and it was just a comfortable place to go. Yeah, I love that. There's a little wine bar right across the street from my office, too, that I like. Um, Now I'm blanking. We all blank. Well, I can't think of it. Sorry, wine bar folks. Yes. Well, good. uh, I guess the only question, do you have any local chocolate that you're, like, that you would recommend to anybody who's buying chocolate for themselves or somebody else? Well, Cloud Forest. Have you had Cloud Forest's stuff? I don't. I, I may have. I don't remember. Sebastian Cisneros is the guy's name. And wow, his chocolate is beautiful. He has this bar called Valentina. And um, it's to dream of. I think it's got a little maple in it sweetener and it's his stuff is elegant and really really good that's my very very top does he go does he have a retail shop or does he sell it elsewhere he sells elsewhere like um have you been to cowbell uh the cheese place no oh that's okay that's my one of my it's not a restaurant but it's one of my favorite portland things Okay. Cowbell Creamery. It's in the industrial area. I think it's on Alder, kind of near mm-hmm. Smith T. That down in that area. Um, right. And uh, amazing little cheese shop, and he sells pasta and all kinds of stuff. And um, it is literally a garage door thing. They open up the door. You wait in line. You can wait quite a while because they give everybody spectacular individual attention. Like you taste these different cheese. It's incredible. So. You can buy Cloud Forest there. And he has a storefront. I think it's on Hawthorne, but it's only on the weekends. The other thing that's really great about um, going to uh, the cheese shop is that across the street, there's this um, furniture store called Cabinet that's spelled with a K. 
Mm-hmm. And they have the, an incredible vermouth selection. So it's a great one-two punch to go get the cheese. And then they have this incredible vermouth selection. And he'll, Trent is the guy that's curated that. And he'll um, give you tastes of all kinds of things. And so those are two. And you can also buy a chair. Yes. A beautiful chair. <laughs> a very stylish exactly. chair. I thought you were going to say City Home. I just recommended that to somebody yesterday. So, um, but I, I think that's in that neck of the woods. Yeah. So, all right. So, what do you got planned for the holidays? Well, by the way, this is going to release in January. So, you will will hear what you were planning, and I don't know if we'll be able to check in to see to how see it how went, it went. So, let's see, because uh, my partner and I both have adult children from different marriages. Um, so between us, there's six of them and they all have partners and other parents and things like that. We have mostly uncoupled from the holidays. We mm-hmm. like did, we don't do Thanksgiving. We do a meal with everybody this time. It just happened to be in October because we love that food. And, um, similarly we do a solstice thing usually with everybody, but, um, because oh, we got COVID, good. we didn't, um, we had to cancel. It was supposed to be, uh, last weekend and we were still, we're in an era where just a lot of things don't have the best laid plans don't always come to pass and we're getting used to it. Unfortunately. Yeah. So I'm going up to Olympic, what? the Olympic peninsula for new year's Eve. Oh, we'll be up in that neck of the woods, too. We're going to Salt Spring Island. Oh, nice. So a little little further up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, nice. Little tradition we have developed uh, with, a, with a hiatus for the last two years. Um, one was weather-related and one was COVID-related. So, But we're going up there. It's nice. You know, I tell you... I've said this before, but one of the reasons, I think the the key reason I really love this podcast is you and I haven't had a chance to I, know, I sit forgot down we were even chat. recording. We're just like talking. Right. So, but I, at least because of this podcast, I get to catch up and have delightful conversations and find out what's going on with you. I wouldn't have, you know, I get little tidbits from Facebook, whatever anybody wants to let out, you see in the way they let it out. So, um... At any rate, just delight. I have one other question sure. for you, just to relate. I'm curious, um, you know, language means a lot to me. So you refer to your partner as a partner. Mm-hmm. I refer, Renee and I refer to each other as boyfriend and girlfriend. And that went away for a lot of people because we're not boys and we're not girls, right. I guess. And so I don't know, but I would still would have a hard time as partner. It sounds too clinical to me. Yeah. It doesn't sound loving enough. Ah, interesting. What's your, what's your take on partner? Well, <laughs> we need a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Uh, I just You said it, and I thought, oh, that's, an, that's always been of interest to me when people – I kind of understand younger people uh, – no offense, but you're not in that you're not in that age bracket that I was thinking of. Yeah. I like it because for me it uncouples a lot of um <laughs> uncouples. A lot of the baggage of relationship and um you know at this point in time I don't have to do relationship in any way other than what the what I want and my partner wants. 
we, you know, we both have raised children. We both, you know, so we don't need each, we need each other for support and companionship. But um, I'm so struck by how strong the scripts come in anyway. And I feel like partner keeps me out of some of the scripts, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay, that's that's something to think about. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we're going to have a nice drive, uh, and we'll discuss the word partner and boyfriend and girlfriend. And Sweetie, I always God liked for- Sweetie. Sweetie's good and love buns and you know we're just trying we're just trying to stay away from husband and wife. I have my general feeling. I'm a cynic. My general feeling is once you go there, the odds automatically change. Well, that yes, and I realize we're about probably out of time. That's I talk about the scripts coming in, like just yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Again. Well, and that's I, all. Yeah, and that's never, you know that's an interesting tradition that isn't necessarily necessary. No. So um, anyway, I've done it once, and uh, and my partner has done it three times. So she should have learned. And what she's doing with me after three, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but we're going on four and a half years now. I'm glad. Keep it in six months and since six month increments to celebrate the insanity, her insanity being with me. So um, anyway, listen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity to hang out and and talk a little. In it. what do you think about this as an episode for Right at the Fork? You were in the the first one. I think it's a pretty cool idea to see the main players in our food world, where they are now. I like it. I like it very much. When you presented the idea to me, I'm interested to see who you talk to and to see what they're doing. I like it. I guess I could throw a bunch of names up, but if they don't actually appear, then who knows? I haven't asked many people yet. But I I don't know how often we're going to do this, maybe once a month, or I could do a whole January series, start out the year that way. We'll see. But... I will say I'm delighted that you, even if you're the one and only, <laughs> um, really great that we got to catch up. And I'm really happy because in the back of my mind, all those years ago, when you left, I thought, man, I really want to talk to Sarah about the end of Alma and what she's doing. I think that's fascinating. And I'm so glad that after a few years, that is a little, it's more palatable for you to sit here and have a conversation about it. Yeah. I don't feel like I have a knife in my heart anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was just really delighted when you said yes because I didn't know what to expect. So, well, thank, thank you, you for inviting me. Let's yes, and let's see if we can get together at, at the cheese shop or at the wine, at a wine bar for old times' sake. I'd love it. Take care. That would be great. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right